Hello and welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to, to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne and with me, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? Going really well. It's good to be back, man. It has been yes. too too long. So, welcome back, listeners. Good to be back here with you. This week, we are actually taking a look at the Disney Plus Moon Knight series that was the inspiration for this crazy podcast adventure that Dwayne and I now have now been on for over two years. So, we're going to take a look. We're going to find out, did this hold up? Was it worth all of the time and effort we put in? Is it maybe even better than we remember? Or would it have been better left buried deep under the Egyptian sands? Let's discuss, Dwayne. This is going to be fun. This was, I, I honestly have not watched it since the initial run in 2022. And we've been talking about doing this for at least six months or so. Maybe, maybe closer to eight. And I'm glad that we're finally doing it. We've got... We've got the first part of it. We're not going to go through all six episodes today. We, we we broke it off into two parts. Week one is the first four episodes. So we do we do have a lot to cover, but uh, but yeah, we're not going to cover everything just just this uh, just this episode. Well, and and really, we're not going to go back through and do a full analysis of all four episodes. You know, if you if you're interested in that. The Phases of the Moonlight podcast actually has an episode sort of preparing for uh, and talking about each one of these episodes. And then we've got some things recapping the full series and all of that. What we're going to do today is just kind of go back and have some general impressions of what we think of these, uh, sort of with a little bit more knowledge and perhaps a, a more cynical eye towards the, uh, the Marvel Universe than we maybe had two years ago. Man, why would we have a cynical eye towards this? Oh, man. It's a very different world for comic book movies than it was when this came out. But, um, but yeah, so we're going to go back through, take a quick look at just what each episode was about. Give you a quick recap, just to remind you of where things were at. Um, Dwayne, I suppose if, if you'd like, we should have our spoiler warning. I, I think we'd recommend, if people have not seen this yet, maybe we'd recommend they go do that. Obviously, if we're if we're willing to put a spoiler warning on something on a movie that's more than a decade old, the least we can do is put a spoiler warning on a six episode TV show that debuted in March of 2022. This is actually a really good series. We're going to talk in great detail about the characters, about the plot, actors and actresses involved, a lot of different things. And if you have not seen this, we would highly recommend you jump onto Disney Plus and take a look at these episodes, at least the first four that we're going to talk about today, and then come back and join us as we talk about uh, what happened in kind of the broad strokes and then jump into some more uh, discussion topics afterwards. Yep, I think, you know, the, the initial sort of spoiler alert is that if I had phoned my non-comic book reading friend and suggested that we, you know, I don't know, 
spend three months reading Secret Invasion comic books to get ready for the Secret Invasion series, and then had had that turd come out as the <laughs> sort of end, you know, of the of the process, it would have been really disappointing. And I think that both during the process and since, Moon Knight has been something that has has from the very beginning had the kind of of reception and quality where we didn't feel bad that we did something about it. Another question is, a couple of years later, how is this going to hold up with all the other shows we've seen and everything else? And yeah. so, take a look with the first few episodes, just to remind everybody where things are at. Um, the first episode was called The Goldfish Problem. And it starts with a really weird scene with essentially Arthur Harrell putting glass in his shoes and walking out and the like. Yeah. And it began essentially a number of episodes of just sitting around going, what in the world is going around, right? And that's for us who just finished reading a bunch of Moon Knight stuff. For regular users, for regular viewers who hadn't listened to our podcast or hadn't maybe read any Moon Knight comics, I think this would have been a very disoriented series. Yeah. Intentionally so. But Intentionally. in this first episode, we, we meet Stephen Grant. We find out he's working at the British Museum in London. He wants to become a tour guide there. Eventually, though, he starts doing things like waking up in the Alps and having people die around him. And then he drives a cupcake van and has adventures. And eventually he wakes up locked on his bed and misses a date by two days. And just all this weird stuff's going on that's completely inexplicable. He finds a phone that's got the name of a number of people we know, but he doesn't. And one person we don't know named Layla, who he ends up calling. And he's hearing, that, he's hearing voices, too. He is hearing voices, a couple of different voices in his head, potentially. Uh, he sees a weird god in the hallway, mistakes an old lady for a scary Egyptian bird. A lot of weird stuff's going on. And then at the end, he ends up vandalizing a bathroom and it sort of cuts to black. So we see the Moon Knight scene, the Moon Knight costume in Moon Knight for about a minute. At the very end, we also see that he's talking to himself in the mirror and there's another Stephen Grant or another person who looks just like him who tells him he needs to occupy the body to save them from a jackal that's chasing them around. And... He gives up the body and is saved. And then that first episode ends. So do you remember any confusion after the first episode? I was, I think literally like, oh my God, what is going on here? What just happened? How? There, I don't know what I expected going in, but this was not what I expected. This felt completely different. It had a different feel to it it was it, it was actually great I, I mean as disorienting as it was i was captured by the end of that first episode i wanted to know what was going on like i knew nope. more pieces than i think a lot of you know the average mcu fan that didn't read comics going into this show had but like Stephen grant was very likable right from the get-go and just all the things that were going on were very mysterious, very disorienting, and it it just really captured me. Yep. And there were things, though, like 
Stephen is British, which we knew going in, kind of. At least we knew that there was a British accent being used in certain parts of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we knew that for whatever reason, and, and we didn't understand why, Oscar Isaac was using a British accent during some of the stuff in here. Then we find out it's set in London, not New York. There's just a lot of things that sort of pulled us away from what was going on. It was obvious it was interesting. Arthur Harrow had a couple of scenes. He had a scene where he, in the in the Alps, where he judged the old lady and essentially murdered her in the street because she was going to commit future crimes. Yes. So that was a little concerning, I think, right? Yes. Um, so, but, so we're starting to see the bad guy a little bit. We understand that there's something really weird going on with our hero. And then we head into the second episode where... Stephen Grant comes back to work, finds out he's been fired because he's on videotape leaving the bathroom after it's been trashed, right? There is no evidence on any of the cameras of any of the stuff he says happened. You don't see the jackal. You don't see Moon Knight. You just see him running around looking like he's seeing and hallucinating things and, and the like. Um... Once we get a little farther in, he actually finds then a storage locker. In the storage locker, he ends up finding passports, weapons, all sorts of stuff, and gets to have a conversation with Mark Spector, who is the second person living in his body. Now, because we know Mark Moon Knight has DID, this wasn't so surprising to us, but it's obviously something that probably was perplexing to a lot of people watching. So we start to find that out. Um, and then as he leaves that, he just about gets run over by a scooter. Scooter happens to be driven by his wife, who he doesn't know is his wife because it's Mark's wife and it's Stephen who's running, which is confusing. They end up getting found by some police officers who take Stephen to Harrow's lair. At Harrow's lair, he finds out that Harrow plans to free Amit, this Egyptian god will then come to Earth and judge everyone and essentially damn all either people who've committed sins or people who will commit sins so that they don't cause problems. And this is the episode Mark's like, well, or, or Stephen, I guess, is like, well, but what about children? He's like, well, you got to break some eggs. If you want to make an omelet, you know? And so Stephen immediately realizes this guy's a little off his rock. He also finds out he's the previous avatar of Kanchu. So that he is, he was Moon Knight before Moon Knight, essentially. That was a really then, chilling exchange, by the way. When when they're talking about that, he talks about, or there are talks about, Kanshu's retribution comes after someone's committed a crime or has has, has done yep. something bad. It it comes too late. Amit is going to come in and going to cleanse the world uh, of this before, presumably the bad things happen. So then we don't have to yep. deal with the aftermath of bad things happening. And I think this is one of those things, it won't be the, the last time, probably I'll compare Harrow to Thanos. But I think this, like many good Marvel villains, Arthur Harrow's plan makes a lot of sense if you don't think about it too much, right? Yes. The idea that murderers would be essentially damned before they could murder a good people. Sounds great. But the problem is, 
you know, isn't there another way to make sure that somebody who's three years old isn't going to murder somebody when they're 45 than just killing them in the crib, you know? Right. So there's a lot of problems with Harrow slash Ahmed's plan once you dig into the details. But he is very personable, sort of chillingly calm, and he's obviously got this plan. Uh, he never runs. He always no. just strolls, right? He's like, and he's, and he's always there too. It's just he crazy yep. across all four episodes. It's just like, how is he getting from place to place so quickly? He's like a teleportation turtle. He didn't move very fast, <laughs> but he's everywhere. That's so, exactly. uh, um, so yeah. And at the at that point, Layla does come in. She helps rescue Grant. Um, Stephen refuses to give the body back to Mark because he's afraid of all the stuff that's been going on. Layla's saying, hey, put on the suit. So he puts on the Mr. Knight suit, which in the suit, yeah. is hilarious because it's not the reason why Moon Knight put on the suit in the comics, but it makes perfect sense in the context of the way they did it, where if somebody yes. who doesn't know who Moon Knight is is told to summon the suit, you know, they make a, a, a suit. Psychotic like, Colonel Sanders, they do. Yeah. So... <laughs> At which point he then beats up on a jackal, eventually impales it on a big spike, and we find out that the reason why Mark is so worried uh, and has ran away from his wife and everything else is that Kanchu has been dissatisfied with him and is planning to turn Layla into his next avatar once he gets rid of Mark. And we all he also loses the scarab that is supposed to find on yep. the tomb. And so everybody goes to Egypt in search of the of the tomb of Ahmed. Yep. Episode three opens up in Egypt. Uh, Mark's already there. We have Layla finding a way to get there by getting a passport and the like. She's going back. We find out she's been dealing in stolen antiquities and the like, so she's got a lot of contacts in the black market. They end up finding someone named Anton Mogart, who's got the sarcophagus that has the maps that they need. They go there. Moon Knight gets speared like 18 times in the, in the chest. And there's kind of a weird comedy violence type routine that goes on. And eventually, Mark needs to give Grant back, Stephen, back control of the body so that he can put these fragments of a map back together. Um, problem is, the map is 2,000 years out of date. And instead of I was, when I was watching it, I'm like, well, you know, there's a tablet that can do this. I realized this time she has a tablet. They yes. literally could have just opened, like, the Star app and moved it back and not had to, you know, have. But Kanchu's not, probably not, not big on technology. Yeah, so. not doing the actual, I'm going to shift the sky to where it was 2,000 years ago so that we can use Imagine the map. The gravitational destruction caused in all of those various civilizations when their stars are ripped Billions yes. of, of kilometers. Yes. That you seems probably, unintended yeah. consequences. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. So anyway, um, they do that because of the fact that that obviously messes up um, sort of reality in a way that exposes the existence of supernatural powers. The other Egyptian gods then actually uh, imprison Khonshu in a little stone statue. Uh, called Nushakti, uh, so that he has essentially punishment for what he's doing. And at this point, 
Moon Knight is no longer Moon Knight. He's no longer the Fist of Conchu because uh, Stephen Grant and Mark Spector cannot access the powers of Moon Knight, either in terms of the suit or the abilities or the immortality, the, the ability to keep from dying um, while Khonshu is in prison. That takes us to the end of episode three. So where are you, how are you feeling about things at the end of episode three? Starting to make more sense? It, it does start to make more sense. And like it has a very clear sort of direction. I feel like you, a lot of them, I would say disorientation of that first episode has sort of dissipated because they've given us enough story and and dialogue between Mark and Steven and we you know we've meet Layla now and we've seen more things with where Arthur Harrow has confronted uh you know Steven and Mark and there all this sort of thing so it it has gone from to me a you know very disorienting to more of a kind of an action adventure sort of sort yeah. of thing and and but it but it like feels different than the standard MCU sort of action and adventure. I think of a lot of the MCU stuff is just being sort of action oriented and it just feels like a certain way. And this feels a little bit different in, in, uh, I, in, in so far as like, it reminded me a lot of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is actually, according to Grant Curtis, who's one of the producers of the show, he said that was one of the movies that they looked at as inspiration for, sure. for this. And I think and that's so, pretty obvious. When you look yeah. At it, that's and, and so it feels so. So I like how it sort of kind of transitioned a little bit. I mean, there's still obviously some mystery and. By the end of episode four, which you're going to talk about here shortly, it goes back into the completely disorienting aspect of things in the latter half of that episode. Yeah, but I think that two and three and then into four um, is almost like a romancing the scarab type of, of movie, right? You know, it's, sure. it's the old classic rom-com about these two star-crossed lovers who are angry at each other, but the spark is still there. And they've got this sort of, you know, MacGuffin that they need to somehow find and, and recover. And so it's a pretty linear story for most of episode two and three. If if episode one is is sort of a psychological profile of someone in mental distress, because Stephen Grant has no idea what's going on with him, but he knows no. there's something wrong. He thinks he's Why sleepwalking. He thinks yep. he's sleepwalking. And so he's yep. doing all these weird things to keep from sleepwalking. And it's obvious yep. that it's way, way more than just sleepwalking. Sleepwalking to Bavaria and back. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So two and three, it's much more of a an organized story. It's still trippy. I mean, he still goes and hangs out in Kachu or in uh, Harrow's weird little commune with the big screen TVs and the decision to try and kill everybody and everything. And he fights the weird beasts and all of that. So there's a lot of supernatural. There's a lot of things that are driving the plot forward. But I think most people would be comfortable with episode two and three and they know the genre and they know what's going on. And into four, 
that kind of continues. It becomes almost more like The Mummy, where you've got the action and adventure, and then you've got a little bit of the jump scares and the horror type of thing, like you'd have had in any of the old Universal Monster movies, right? Yeah. So they find a deserted campsite, uh, sort of out at the tomb after they've they've made way across the desert. Stephen is able to use all of the learning he's been doing while reading books while he's trying to to uh, prevent going to sleep to figure out that the maze that they go into in the in the temple is in the shape of the eye of Horus. Um, they end up fighting a priest that's actually going in and essentially making mummies on the fly. Um, and there's some, some fun stuff there. By being split up, Stephen finds the tomb first. It's actually Alexander the Great, and he rips off his mummy bandages and sticks his hand down and grabs the Shepti from, from like in his throat. Uh, the Ahmed. As a as a historian, even watching that, knowing it's not real, it does hurt my heart to think of someone just vandalizing a tomb that would be that historically important, by the way. I I have right. a, kind of made me a little sick to my stomach. But while he's doing his tomb raiding, she is actually evading the mummies, uh, just about falling off a cliff, being surprised by mummies. And then she has a conversation with Harold where he reveals to her that Mark had something to do with her dad's death, which then means that when she finds him, instead of getting the heck out of there like they should be, they spend about five minutes just talking feelings until the bad guys get there and shoot Mark, right? Well played, everyone. Very frustrating, I have to say. But as in the comics, Mark does have a part in Layla's dad's death. He doesn't kill him, but he helps to lead the sort of Tomb Raider, the crazy guy who ends up killing all of the archaeological party to the place where they find them. So that's obviously not good. When Mark gets shot, attempting to let Layla get away, he falls back into a small pool of water that's there, which he just keeps sinking in which must be a metaphor we have to believe uh, rather than a 500-foot pool of water in the uh, in the middle of the tomb. It eventually, as it goes down, the light focuses into just a circle. That focused light from the circle turns into a movie projector bulb. We see a movie that looks like it's from the 80s in really grainy quality, mm-hmm. and it turns out that it is a Tomb Raider movie starring the famous archaeologist, Dr. Stephen Grant. And when it pulls away, we are in essentially an asylum, a uh, a mental hospital. And Stephen Grant and pretty much all of the other characters, or excuse me, and Mark Spector, and pretty much all of the characters that we've seen throughout the film are patients in this hospital. You've got, you know, Crawley calling bingo, You've got the manager of the museum sitting there complaining about something or another. Everybody is there. And this is the point, I think, where most people would have lost their marbles and either either said this show is for me or I hate this show and I'm going to stop watching. Right. So what what essentially happens? They go in. He talks to Harrow. 
He's like, man, you just shot me. I don't want to be sitting here talking to you as some sort of a vision of a psychologist, right? So he falls down, he runs away, he gets away from the orderlies, finds a sarcophagus in one of the empty rooms, opens the sarcophagus, it's, and there's Stephen. Yeah. So Stephen right? is in there pounding, trying to get out. And yeah, let me out, let me out. out. And now we see both of them in physical space. So instead of sharing a body, now they each have their own body in the asylum. So one, there is but, one last thing, just is, a small detail. Just a small detail. Now that they're together, they run past a room that has another sarcophagus and don't open it, uh, which we all, all of us who've was, been Moon Knight fans yeah. for a while were like, what are you doing? Why are you not letting Jake out, right? Yeah. But they wander past, they go to the exit door, open up, and there's a massive hippo standing there who says hi in this weird high little voice, and then both of them scream, and it cuts to black. That, that so, is how it is. So that's where we're ending off today, these four, four episodes. And I think that really makes sense because five and six are sort of the resolution of the story. One through four sort of builds you all through this to this point at the afterlife where everything hits the fan. So. Yes. We've now rewatched episodes one through four. These came out, as you noted, from March 30th to April 20th of 2022. So nearly two years now have passed. How'd they hold up for you? Just in general. In general, I really, really enjoyed rewatching these episodes. The, the, the show, I think, looks and feels great. Uh, I don't. I knew I remembered I liked uh, Oscar Isaac in this role, and he was absolutely as fantastic as as I thought I remembered him being. Uh, Arthur Harrow was just as creepy as he was, played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, Layla was great, too. It, the, there was just, there was so many things to like about this, and it just was like, there I, I sat back at, after watching the four episodes and, I, and I'm thinking, what would I change? I don't know that I would change anything necessarily. Like there, I, I'm, there are reasons things were done the way they were done here versus, you know, how they could have been done. But I, nothing to me stands out as a giant nitpick that I would be like, this is, I, I, I am really upset. I'm really irritated by this. I have I have nitpicks, but you know what? A lot of those are things that at the time I think bothered me more than they do now, and they're things that I think maybe other storytellers have made the same decision on lately. You know, when when this came out, the fact that they didn't have really any of our classic characters. There's no Marlene. We don't really get Crawley. We don't get Frenchie, right? Mm -hmm. But then you look at Jed McKay decided to do the same thing. He, he did, so it, yes. evidently, there's something going on with, you know, those those characters maybe just didn't resonate with modern authors, modern storytelling the way that they wanted to, and so they decided to to move things out. Um, I do think that we 
we don't see as much of Moon Knight himself as I would like. I understand the the jump cut every time there's violence thing intellectually, but it still kind of pisses me off a little bit. I would <laughs> I would like to see a little bit. Of you want to see instead it's instead of they they called it implied violence. You had you had the moments leading up to the violence, then you had the aftermath of the violence, and you just were supposed to imagine what that violence looked like. And, and instead, we see that violence most of the time in the comics. And so that's that's maybe where you would have gone with some of that. Well, and I think, I mean, when you look at the scenes afterwards, it's implied carnage in that yeah. case. There's blood everywhere. So True. almost certainly they could not have had the scenes with the results that we see at the end and put them on Disney Plus, right? Right. That is not made to be on the same channel as as Little Mermaid and the like. But it's still, they could have done it a little differently and been able to give us more of the superhero violence, uh, superhero fighting that, uh, that we're used to from Moon Knight. That said, I would agree in that I don't require them to change it. I think that the, You've always got to make a decision on how you're going to tell a story. And the decision they made, made for a really entertaining experience. Going back on a lot of the other Marvel movies, again, if you've been with us through comics over time, you may have noticed that they, that we've gotten, I've gotten at least, increasingly more cynical on a lot of things. And a lot of times on the rewatches, I'm like, I remembered liking this more when I first watched it. Yep. I think I like this better than when I first watched it, partly because I'm no longer so confused. That, I'm not spending all my time going, why is Arthur Harrow doing this? He's supposed to be a Nazi scientist in, like, the Yucatan, right? Mm -hmm. Where is the Yucatan? <laughs> and and how, how is he going to get out there, and how is this going to connect uh, to people with bolts in their head and everything else? Now that I know what they did on a lot of these things, it makes sense to me. Now that I'm not looking for Marlene, because I know that they replaced Marlene with Layla and that she's not going to be there. I don't have to wait for her, right? Uh, if anything, that is her. Uh, although now we know it's not because Layla's in the comics. So there is a Layla and a Marlene. Um, the fact that I know that essentially, Dr. Harrow is Dr. Emmett from the, the Lemire run. All of these things make it a lot easier for me now just to enjoy the show instead of constantly being, what's going on here, you know? And, and I think that's really helped it. I know it's helped me enjoy the performance of a lot of the characters. I think that the, the very first time we watched it, especially looking at Ethan Hawke, I didn't I didn't enjoy his performance as much because I was always confused by what the heck is this guy? What's going on? And now just being able to watch it, holy mackerel, does he does he eat scenes in this? Yeah. They so I I liked so I saw this thing from Jeremy Slater, one of the the show creators, talking about Arthur Harrow. The main villain of this is actually, like you said, he's basically 
a throwaway villain from one issue way back in volume two. And they, they looked at when they were building this story, they said that, you know, one of the most recognizable villain for Moon Knight is Raul Bushman. And they said mm-hmm. they looked at it and they just felt that character, Bushman, was too close to Black Panther's Eric Killmonger. So they were looking for a new villain. So they took the name of a character that didn't really have anything, any, any backstory or anything like this. No, he does they, not. They, they worked with Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, you know, basically modeled this this villain after david koresh and and like they built up this this character and this is a really interesting really weird really just kind of thought-provoking sort of character who who again you mentioned it earlier there is a a logic uh, in theory to his plan of what yep. he's trying to do it's just that when you think about it it's like it no that actually does go way too far and we we should yep. not do that and so it they they did a really good job with the villain yeah he's he's crazy but he's got a he's got a rational desire and the irrational means of getting there right and and I think that oftentimes makes for the the best villain. It's somebody who they've seen some they they've seen a wrong that they want to right, and it's driven them almost insane trying to find a way to do that in a world where it's very difficult to fix things. And so they uh, they make bad choices. But I really think this is this is a very satisfying series in that it's different. It is constantly evolving you never you never know what you're going to get from even episode to episode and i think that in some ways that's the thing that in retrospect i most like about it is it's easy i think when you look at moon knight to think that the thing that defines him is that he's some badass vigilante who's out tearing people's faces off i think the thing that defines moon knight is twofold. It's that he is on a quest to essentially right the wrongs of his previous life, right? That he was a bad guy, and now he wants to use those same powers to be a bad guy, to be a good guy. The only problem is his main stool, his main tool is still pain. And so yeah. sometimes he goes a little too far. But the other thing that this really, I think, does a good job of showing is the change is constant for the Moon Knight character. Like almost every run we read when we were rereading those 300 books, Moon Knight was almost like reborn, repeatedly actually reborn. But even when he had (laughs) died in between series, he changed so much it seemed like it was a new character. And that's kind of what this did as well. It it led him even from... From like episode to episode, the character is evolving and the show is evolving. So it's always something new. So so that's the first four. We're going to stop there for now. Uh, where we leave our man off, he is staring at a giant, seemingly friendly uh, hippo and is probably dead. 
So you've got a few things you wanted to talk about, just sort of as far as basic elements. I've got a few as well. What are what are some of your takeaways or things you wanted to talk about from these first four? Well, you you talked about kind of the some of some of the things that have changed, some of the things that have remained the same. I just the thing that struck me after watching these first four episodes was they did a really good job of incorporating a lot of the Moon Knight elements that we knew into this adaptation. It, it's not exact, obviously. You know, we have we have Mark who who definitely has DID in this, and we we see two of the three altars, and presumably we probably got an implied version of of Jake Lockley as well during during this. We got to see both suits. I'm going to tell you, I did not know how they were going to incorporate both suits into the into the series. I was expecting to see the main Moon Knight uh, regalia, but I did not expect to see a Mister Knight suit, and mm-hmm. uh, was was very happy to see the psychotic Colonel Sanders, as it, as it, as Mark put it when he saw it. They they you know they had callbacks to characters, not all of them, as you as you pointed out. Crowley, the the street performer slash bingo caller, uh, it, it was definitely a mainstay for a very long time in the comics. Even Bobby and Billy, the kind of the the orderlies in uh, the the police officers, or and then orderlies in the in the asylum that we see at the end of episode four, they they were uh, in the kind of uh, the Lemire run as well that you were talking about as kind yep. of assistance to the main doctor. So they fit in perfectly as assistance to doc- to, to, to Arthur Harrow as well. We had one of kind of the original villains for Moon Knight. Anton Mogart yep. is in this, is in this, the Midnight Man from very, very early on in the very first volume of Moon Knight. And and I love the fact that you know, you know he was a little bit different. They never mentioned the Midnight Man, but heck, as they're leaving his place, the clock strikes midnight. So I mean, it's like nope. all, all of that sort of thing. And even Mark's like history, right? He's a mercenary. He was a part of a, a group that killed some archaeologists, who then turned on him and killed him. And you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna find out. Uh, that some of that now in five and six as well, but then getting resurrected by Kanshu. Kanshu, what some of his powers and some of those sorts of things, they're just it it felt like a good adaptation because it it took a lot of the elements from the comics and then just put them on screen and are like, this is this is who this character is. And yep. And I think they did a really good job with it. I would agree. And, you know, they're, they're, they're almost at this point like you know, the door to Seinfeld's apartment opening and here comes Kramer and everybody laughs and applauds because you just instantaneously know them all because they're stars of other shows or whatever. But most of these, I don't think there's any reason you had to know that Crawley was a character in the comics to be able to fully understand the whole him sitting there talking to a statue type of thing, right? 
-hmm. was just something weird that made sense. But because of the way they did it, there was a resonance there for those of us who had read the comics. And I think that's the perfect way to do a lot of these Easter egg type things where they don't actually disrupt the story. You're not building the story around it. You're using a story point you want to use and populating it in a way so there's a little extra something there if somebody's a fan of the comics, right? And just overall, I've, I was really impressed with the way that got done, the way they integrated a lot of the stuff from, uh, from the, Lear, the Lemire run and from the the fact that he was in the, the hospital and everything like that. We'd heard rumors they were going to do that, but I actually did think that was just a, a bridge too far. I think even in our wrap-ups to the show and, and, and when we found this out, I'm like, man, this is not the way to introduce Moon Knight, right? Because Moon Knight is, this is, this is graduate level Moon Knight stuff, right? You need to get the character before you put him in the asylum. And here, and here, but, here but here's the thing: the the crazy thing about this is the two top-rated episodes of the series are episodes four and episodes five. The the tomb, and then and then episode five, the asylum that we're going to talk about next week. So it is. Well, I'm not claiming. I'm not claiming I was right, Dwayne. I'm 100%. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying that it it the thing that felt like it was going to be so impossible to achieve seems to have actually really resonated uh with the public at large. Well, and one of the things that I think is a caveat to what I said is I was fully expecting Moon Knight season 2. I was fully expecting Moon Knight to be crossing over into other Marvel properties. And when that's the case, making him this broken is difficult, right? It's difficult to bring him into the Avengers when he's this much of a you know wild card, right? Yeah. And so now, two some years later, when we find out that there has been no more Moon Knight, and maybe this was, maybe literally Oscar Isaac did have a, a one-shot well, then, hey, it makes perfect sense. Go for it. Use use your craziest, biggest idea on the six episodes you're going to do, right? Indeed. So, Dan, you're saying the show took some risks then? Yeah, to me, I think that you know, that's my number one point, is that a lot of the Marvel stuff lately has seemed to me to be super safe. And it has been homogenized and it has been focus grouped and it's starting to kill them. You know, yeah. they, they're trying to be so blockbuster, please everyone that they're not pleasing anybody at this point. They're just making generic nonsense. And this is not that Moon Knight is actually a challenging show and it's got a lot of stuff going on in it that it is tough to. It, it's it's tough to understand initially. I think there are a lot of people who probably watched a couple episodes and said, what the hell is this? And quit, right? But it also got some Emmy nominations. And it got some relatively positive press. I think that a lot of people who looked at the way that it portrayed DID, 
looked at it as being at least a little bit more realistic than the way it had been done by some previous shows. Uh, I think that when you look at the storytelling, it's got things going on that are new and interesting. When it does call back into genres, it does so in sort of a fun, uh, almost like a tongue-in-cheek way. So they're more celebrating some of that stuff than just copying it. I, I think that, yeah, when, when I look at this, it seems to me like Moon Knight could hold up better than a lot of the other shows that were made in Phase 4. Oh, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And that actually kind of leads me where I'd like to go next, which is that this really, while it has the polish, I think, of an MCU show, this doesn't feel like an MCU show. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're filming this is located outside New York, you know, first in London and then in Egypt. It has that darker feel that I think reminded me a lot of the Daredevil TV series that I really liked a lot. You yep. know, we we had violence, but it was implied violence. Um, you know, what take take that for what it's worth. It did feel like this was more of a violent show than um than, than like some of the movies and things that we're that we're seeing in theaters. It, this has a TV for TV 14 rating. It doesn't go full M like the Daredevil show is, or I think M is actually where the new Echo series is supposed to go that's coming out this next week. But oh, it definitely you? started to push towards that direction, right? You you talked about how disorienting that first episode was. I, I loved the way that worked. Uh, episode two, that storage locker chase with the flashing lights and Khonshu and everything yep. felt very thriller-like almost Alfred Hitchcock in, in in a way. And it just, it then transitioned into this sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of adventure. And, and like, like I mentioned earlier, that, that was one of the inspirations. They also, Curtis Grant also mentioned Memento, the psychological thriller from 2000, John Wick and the Bourne Identity as other movies that they looked at as being uh, kind of inspirations our influences on the film. And, and I could definitely see that, you know, some of the fight choreography from John wick, I could definitely see that kind of some of the suspense uh, things from the born identity. Definitely, definitely hit for me here too. I think I, one thing my, my wife mentioned was Egypt looks amazing. Like it doesn't look cloud covered or smoggy or gross. Like it's some, third world country that like seems to be the way a lot of movies and TV shows depict this part of the world. And, and obviously director Mohammed Diab is probably one of the biggest reasons that didn't happen. He said, this was one of the most important things was to depict Egypt in a, in a positive or, or realistic way, both it's present and past and past. And and so they were they they were specifically looking at there was there was uh consultants they brought in to make sure things looked right. You talked about how they handled DID, they had consultants for that as well. It I mean it even goes to like the start of episode three. We have that rooftop fight with Mark Spector and those guys with the knives. 
and they talked and Mohammed Diab says the idea for that knife fight came because there's an Egyptian style of fighting that involves a mix of dancing and dangerous knife attacks. So you have this sort of thing and it, it's baked into the culture and, and we got to see it and, and it was, and it was portrayed very well on, on screen. And it just, all of that then just sort of coalesced into this perfect product that was like, this is, this, this is interesting. This is attention grabbing. And, the, and, and, it, it worked. There's a the the entire series has a, a rating of seven point three, which is which is pretty a solid rating uh, yep. on IMDb Absolutely. as far as this, uh, and, and I and I I definitely can see why. Yeah, one other movie by the way I watched, uh, You Will Suspects with the family. Oh yeah, a week or so ago, and I think that some of those aspects of, you know, taking things in your surroundings and then weaving them into another story kind of come into that as well. So I think that could have potentially been a, an influence on things too. Forgot to mention the Egyptian rap songs that we had kind of at the end of the, during the closing credits in that I just, there was everything about this just sort of like they, they just, it's like, I, we want to make a good series and yes, it's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but we want to make this series exactly the way we want it. And and so we don't have any other other characters from other MCU properties in here or, or Marvel properties in here. And they just they 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 did it and they nailed it and and I love this series for that reason. Well you if you'll remember, in my cough medicine addled mind back two years ago, I theorized that this was not actually an MCU show at all. And I think that it is very possible that no one's ever going to be able to prove me wrong on that because there will never be anything that actually connects it. And so that is, that is very odd in the modern interconnected Marvel world that we see with all the other movies, that there wasn't even a small cameo by anybody to connect this in. But it does give me that feeling that this very well could be just a, it is a standalone show. You don't need to have watched anything else to enjoy it. You you brought up a point earlier that I'd like to hear a little bit more about, which was comparing Arthur Harrow to Thanos. Uh, how? Well, I think that the idea with a lot of villains is that the best villains have a point but they just go about it the wrong way they're almost like a a broken version of the hero right and if you look at the joker in the dark knight and he looked at a corrupt city and he was right it was a corrupt city but he took the wrong lessons from that you know and you look at Thanos. Obviously, the world has problems with too many people and not enough resources. But he took the wrong lesson from that. If you gain the power, help the people by making twice the resources. Don't just kill half of them, right? If, right. And, and it's the same thing, really, with Harrow. That this is a guy who's looking around and he's seeing all the pain and problems in the world. And he says, you know, if we could just keep people from sinning, but there's extenuating circumstances from there's there's 
you know, unintended consequences from that that are going to cause you a lot of trouble. And so I think that he is a very well-constructed character. Obviously, he was constructed on the fly. But in the end, he turns out to be definitely evil. But he's also broken in a way where you kind of understand. The, the fact that they gave him a connection as the previous Fist of Conchu, and that really it was always in him that he wanted this vengeance. But having served Conchu for as long as he did, essentially breaking people and taking vengeance on those who'd committed crimes, he just started going, you know, none of the people who are dead are coming back because I beat this guy and tore his face off, right? There's got to be a better way. And so that led him then to look towards a different solution, to look towards Amit, and now he's coming back. And there's even a time where he has kind of a one-sided conversation with Kanchu. Yeah, where, I was just thinking about know, that, yeah. He, he talks about... Exactly he, this. He ta- yeah, he, ta- he talks about the fact that you basically made me who I am, and mm-hmm. I'm going to win because you made me who I am. Yep. And he's just got this sort of... We call it this gentle malice about him that is a really disconcerting thing when you don't know what to expect out of a character it's it's disorienting and we don't know what to expect out of Arthur Harrow so I think that Ethan Hawke from the very first scene where he breaks that glass and he puts it into his shoes and he starts walking you just know there's something weird with this guy right and so it, it just goes from there. And you hear the glass periodically throughout the entire rest of the series, too. It's like occasionally he will be on screen and he will take a step and, and you'd swear, you swear you hear some glass breaking or shifting in his sandals. Yeah, so he is, I mean, definitely also somehow trying to atone for things. Yeah. Right? He's got... He's got his own sins, most of them probably committed in the service of Kanchu, that he's trying to atone for. But there's no question Oscar Isaac is the star of this show. And he did a fantastic job. And I'm sure next week when we finish it all up, we'll talk about just how astonishing that performance is. Because it it really was one of the better things that the MCU's done. And that's not a low bar, by the way. The MCU, a lot of people give it crap, but there's been a lot of really good performances, especially over the, the course of, you know, the 30 movies. This is one of the better ones. And Hello, though, Ethan Hawke keeps up with him. He provides a foil to him who is worthy of, of Oscar Isaac's Moon Knight. So I, I really, the more I watched it and the more I'm not trying to compare him to somebody else or to put him in a box or to figure out who he's supposed to be right and i'm just appreciating the performance the more i realize this was really something pretty special i would agree so the last thing i want to mention is i was really kind of looking at the visual effects during this rewatch because we've seen some rather lackluster VFX 
uh, over the last couple of years when it comes to some of the movies and, and the like. And through the first four episodes, I have to say that there's been some pretty amazing looking visual effects that have occurred. Talk about when we see him summoning the suit, whether it's the Mr. Knight suit or, uh, you know, the, the main uh, Moon Knight regalia. That looks as epic as I would think that it should look if you're going to put this on uh, in live action. Uh, the bathroom scene at the end of episode one, that thing is going to go down in history as being kind of one of the coolest uh, things that have ever been captured. And, and I was actually just seeing an article on Polygon just within the last week or so that talked about the fact that the mirror sequence took 10 months of VFX work in order to be, to take all the cameramen out of the shot because of the reflection of the mirrors on either side. And then to kind of put Mark Spector uh, in the mirror and be able to talk to Stephen Grant with it. It was, it was actually just amazing to me. Uh, The jackal that we saw at the end of episode one and into episode two uh, the running across the rooftops uh, looked actually, you know, some of that was probably probably stunt work. Some of, but but like the way the moon looked and and the way everything uh, ended up being in kind of the background, it just looked amazing. We had the crescent uh, cape of of Moon Knight when he comes down off of the roof of Anton Mogart's. Uh, like his his pyramid mm-hmm. thing where the sarcophagus was. You have Arthur Harrow's tattoo moving when he's judging people and like the way the tattoo the the cane started glowing when he was using uh, some of Amit's powers. Uh you talked about the sky movement. The sky movement looked really neat as they were turning back the the sky in in that and you know not the least of which is we had a huge Egyptian god by the name of Kanchu that was showing up on screen periodically, and he just looked as frightening and as menacing as as anything I've ever seen. And it did not look fake. It didn't look out of place. It just looked great. There you go. I had... I had kind of a different take in some ways on the special effects. I think, I think the design of the special effects, the ideas, the way they did them, the way they, the way they framed them, things like the way the cape worked, going across the moon, and 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 I did really like the way Conchu looked and everything. I remember, and I still think in this one, things like the jackal scenes and stuff like that. The jackal did not look as smooth as I would like. I don't think in actual fact that the visual effects on Moon Knight are particularly great. I think that they are good. And because they're good and the story works well, and they're not ridiculous, people aren't questioning them as much. Um, It's it's not the talking head in Thor Love and Thunder is what you're saying? No. I'm. Well, you mean Modoc, Quantumania. 
No, no, I'm talking the, the, the little boy talking to... Oh, my God. I forget. Why did you bring this up? <laughs> I had forgotten. No. There's... Yes, Modoc's bad, too, but there's I was thinking is... of something worse, which is uh, the little Heimdall's boy. Heimdall's kid, yeah, that's terrible. That, there's nothing in this that even approaches that. All of the special effects are solid, and again, the design and the way they're used is fantastic. So they look great. You know, there also is not probably as many of them. So it was something that was reasonable. You did not have in this more than probably about maybe five minutes of science of, of special effects per episode, I would bet. Because a lot of times it's in the museum or they're in the desert or... So that probably means that the special effects houses were not as harried as they would have been by some of them. So... Everything to me looked done, I think, is the is the thing. Where whereas like some some things we've seen felt yep. they felt unfinished. Well, and I'm I'm glad that the effects really did it for you because I think that that is important, you know? Yeah. And to me the fact that I didn't notice that essentially two of the main characters, more than that, were completely because Tarit's completely animated. Moon Knight's completely animated for the most part. Uh, at least the regular suit had to be in its final form. The All the gods, you know, like Amit and Kanchu. So there were a lot of, of things to do that if it hadn't looked good, it would, have, it would have messed with it. There were also a lot of times they were in, you know, the hospital or wherever where they didn't need any visual effects. And that probably helped the budget and then also making it easier for the folks who are trying to get this done. So, but I do like that regardless of how good the effects were, they didn't depend on the effects for the story as much. They depended on it for the spectacle, you know? It's like now right. we've, we've, we've done this interesting psychological drama for five and a half episodes. Now let's have a couple CGI characters punch each other in the face for 15 minutes. Call it good and go home, Right. I don't mean to give away the end. You're, yeah, but. you're getting ahead of yourself. But yeah, we 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 have this psychological thriller, and then all of a sudden, a, a, a Godzilla movie breaks out at the end. Yep. So for these four episodes, it really is focused on character, and actual actors, and actual sets, for the most part. And I like that. Yeah, we 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 talked about that a lot of time. A lot of a lot of the best parts or the best movies is when they don't have to rely on the special effects to tell the story that they are yep. a compliment rather than the, than kind of the, the main point. Absolutely. All right, what's your, what's, what's your last point that we are going to get out on here? I guess to me, the, the other thing that I like, and this may, may be talked about as well, so I don't know how long we have to go over it is that to me, redemption has always been that key element of moonlight. And so I, in retrospect, I like the way that they constructed both Harrow and Amit as the villains in that they essentially are people who've given up a belief that there can be redemption, right? Like we don't, we don't want to get to the point of redeeming because once someone has sinned, that sin is irrevocable. There's no way to fix it. And in fact, the best thing to do is to just kill that person before they can even do the sin. Whereas Moon Knight is all about 
And and I think Jed McKay in the current series has been really focusing on that as well. You know, that instead of killing the vampires, he brings them on board. Instead of eight ball meeting some tragic end on the end of a spear, he's now part of the gang. That there is and and even with soldier, you know, somebody who used to be a Hydra uh, so, sort of foot soldier now has been redeemed as part of the team. So that that idea of somebody doing something wrong and then trying to make up for it. There really is something about the villains they chose for this that just absolutely confronts and denies sort of that most important element of what Moon Knight's doing, which is to try and somehow ever so slowly over time make up for all of the lives he cost while he was a mercenary and while he was a spy and while he was doing all this other stuff. Well, I, I think I, I would definitely agree. I love, I love that. And it does really kind of resonate because that is such a overarching theme throughout a lot of the, the comic book story arcs that we read over the, over the last two years. And it's, it's also interesting to me because I don't know if you can tell, but I have not had a lot of comic book movies over the last two years that have actually gotten me excited about ideas, that have actually felt like they're dealing in ideas. And especially after the end of, of Endgame, Marvel's really had a tough time really telling a, a, a good story that has the ability to have you thinking about greater themes and the like, you know? They tried it in Thor Love and Thunder with Christian Bale's character. But I think that it just kind of, the whole tone and everything of it kind of went away and, and didn't really work. Uh, you, they tried it in Guardians a little bit, but I think that the villain in that was so terrible, going around killing baby raccoons, that people were unwilling to even even think about it because he's just a complete asshole. You know, you're not going to... He's just wrong. You don't have to contemplate what his issues were. You just have to go, this guy needs to be stopped, right? And with this one, there's actual competing ideas at work and interesting stuff outside of punching going. And I appreciate that. We like our punching, but we like our big ideas, too. We are Moon Knight fans. If we do not like the punching, we should go and find a different hero. So there you go. All right. Normally, this would be the time where we talk about our face-off, but we have two more episodes that we need to watch before we can do a true comparison between the uh, books that we read the previous three weeks and the two, the six episodes mini or limited series that was on disney plus dan before we go i want you to tell us a little bit about a new podcast that's coming out on this feed oh sure yeah so longtime listeners will know that usually Dwayne and i over the last couple of years have had a small feature at the beginning of each podcast where we talk about what's new on marvel unlimited and that's been because we've been going out reading stuff using Marvel Unlimited as our primary tool for getting ready for our podcasts uh, when we're reading comics for comparing them to movies or when we were reading the Moon Knight stuff. As we're going into Daredevil, 
Uh, both of us have had a bit of time to contemplate, and we believe that uh, we may be going a little long occasionally. <laughs> I don't know if any of you've noticed, but so we're going to try and cut back on a few things. And one of those is that the essentially what's new in Marvel Unlimited is going to move to a smaller, probably 15 to 20 minute podcast that my daughter and I are going to do. Where we're going to talk about what's coming out this week on the Marvel Unlimited app. And then she's going to read a story or two and we're going to talk a little bit about them and have some recommendations and the like. So if you are a Marvel Unlimited subscriber, uh, one of the interesting things is that the way comics are normally advertised and promoted and everything is there's a big focus on when they are first solicited in the previews catalog and when they are released into comic stores, but very little actually when they come out on the digital app. That's just sort of treated as an afterthought. Well, to us, it's not an afterthought because that's where, you know, mostly I'm getting my Marvel comics now because I'm not buying a lot of them in the stores other than Moon Knight and now Daredevil. I've added all the Daredevil stuff to my pull list so that I can have those as well. Um, so it, it felt like this would be kind of fun. So, yeah, every week uh, you uh, wanted to learn a little bit more about what's happening in the Marvel Universe currently, join Sienna and I. Dwayne and I will also be there talking about what happened previously in the Marvel Universe, starting out back in the early 60s in a few weeks here and uh, moving forward. So the first episode was released just this last week. Correct? Yeah. And so it is in, and it'll be coming out each week in the main Comics Over Time feed. So you don't have to do anything else. Just say, uh, Stay following, say subscribe to the feed, and you will get those episodes in addition to our regular weekly episodes. We look forward to it. Uh, come on out, give it a check, see uh, see what you think. That sounds good. Dan, next week, what what are we what are we doing next week? Night five and six. We talk about those. Talk about how the show wrapped up. Then we're going to do a quick sort of compare and contrast we're going to do an actual face-off between the moon knight tv show and jed mckay's 30 issue run of moon knight i have to say it's going to be an interesting one i do not envy myself having to make a decision on that so we will see how it goes that is going to be an interesting an interesting face-off next week to say the least very very contentious probably I would think so. And as a part of that, we will also be talking, I think, a little bit about where we think Moon Knight's going next in terms of TV and comics and everything else with what information we have. So we'll go from there. Looking forward to that. But with that, I think that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. You can send those to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via social media on Twitter slash X at Comics Overtime, as well as Blue Sky at Comics Overtime. Dan, until next week, we've got two more episodes to watch, and then... The face-off to end all face-offs. Yeah, it's going to be... I literally don't know what I'm going to... 
I may I may abstain. I'll just let you make the decision. We'll we'll see. Great. Make it my decision. <laughs> All right. Well, to find out how we do or how we end up coming to an answer on this, tune in next week. And until then, take care, everybody. See you later, folks. Have a great one. Bye.